Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Garth Johnson from Newcastle University discusses a state-of-the-art biomechanical model of the shoulder and its use to design novel shoulder joint replacements. Well, good evening. Welcome to the uh, annual lecture of Biome. Um, and it's very good of you all to come on this Friday evening. And we're very uh, pleased and happy to welcome <coughs> Professor Garth Johnson, uh, who is going to talk about uh, the arm engineering for rehabilitation. Garth probably needs no introduction to a lot of you, but, but for those who might need some introduction to him, uh, he, uh, he is, well, he's now retired, but I, when I saw him the other day, you said you were busier than ever. That's the usual story. Retired Professor of Rehabilitation Engineering at Newcastle University, uh, and 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 really got the first chair of that of that department in, in, in the university. He has become uh, a, a, an international expert uh, on rehabilitation, on uh, mainly the upper limb, might be fair to say, but actually you, you you're an expert in in movement and forces and kinetics of other limbs as well. So um, you're talking about the arm tonight, but I think that does that's not your total remit by by a long way, is it? Um, he sits on a number of uh, very erudite committees, um, um, UK focus of biomedical engineering. Uh, he's a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering. He's a fellow of the Institution of Mechanical Engineers. Um, he's an international advisor, and he has been a government advisor too. Um, so, Garth, uh, thank you so much for coming to talk to us in Bath. We're looking forward very much to, uh, to hearing what you have to say about uh, the arm and its, and its rehabilitation engineering. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Patrick. Well, good evening, everyone, and it's good to see so many people here and to be back in Bath. And I'm, I'm honoured that um, I find I'm at the end of <coughs> number 42, so there's obviously some tradition built up here, and I, so I feel some onus on me to lead things on to number 43, whoever that may be. What I want to do today is to talk to you about something that I've become enthusiastic about over many, many years, about 25, 30 years ago, I suppose, most of my bioengineering colleagues seemed to be absolutely obsessed with hip replacements, for very good reasons, but it seemed to me there were lots of other interesting and things we didn't understand around the place, and that these things were probably quite a good example of that, when there were lots of interesting biomechanical mysteries and things we really didn't understand. So I decided many, many years ago to put some big effort in that area. It was a bit of a Cinderella area, not all that easy to get funding for it many times, but nevertheless has been re rewarding, I think, and has led to some interesting outcomes. So what I'm going to try and do for you is to demonstrate, first of all, clinical applicability of engineering. That's the core of what bioengineers do. We're, we're not happy with our engineering unless it goes into clinical practice in one way or another. So I'm going to talk first of all about computer modelling to support joint replacement and show how that for us has led to actually some new joint replacement design. To talk about the, the second bit, which I think is really, really important engineering contribution, which is that of measuring things. Engineers do three basic things. They make things, they measure things, and they model things. And the measurement often gets forgotten, I think, but it is a key skill that we have. And gait analysis is, of course, a major example of using that skill in clinical practice. So I'm going to talk about engineering measurements in relation to neurological control in the upper limb. And then I'm going to talk just for a few minutes about the possible future of robots for stroke rehabilitation. Rehabilitation of the upper limb of the arm is a major, <coughs> major problem for people after stroke. And those numbers are increasing. And the money 
is decreasing, and so we have to look at new technologies in that area. So that, that's what tonight's about. I'm aware that Barnes-Wallace founded the Bath Institute of, Mechanic of Medical Engineering, was the founder-president, I think is his correct title. And so it made me think about what were the things that we might reflect on from that very great engineer. And of course, what Barnes-Wallace was very, very good at was he was a superb experimental engineer. And nearly everything he had to do had to rely on experiments because computer modelling, as we now know it, did not exist. Probably some quite basic computer modelling would have told him what altitude and speed his Lancaster bomber should go when releasing the bouncing bomb. But he had to do it all experimentally. And I think orthopaedic implant design mirrors those changes. That in the early days of hip replacement design, it was actually pretty empirical stuff, and they usually worked, but sometimes they didn't, and people had good ideas, which really they tested inside patients. So I think we've moved on from the Lancaster bomber and the bouncing bomb to the A380. And the interesting thing about the A380, the engine, one of the many interesting things, is that it was never really tested <coughs> in the laboratory in the sense that we've used to understand that. It was built using thousands and thousands of computer models, bringing <coughs> together all sorts of expertise, large numbers of engineers, leading to a device which worked. And when the pilot went on the runway with it and pulled back the joystick, it went and it took off. That's what orthopedic implant design ought to be like, and a lot of other aspects of engineering. So I think that's a way we might sort of start thinking about tonight. So, okay, although I'm interested in arms, the shoulder has always been the particular obsession, largely because it's very interesting mechanically, and because unless you can get the shoulder right, you can't get the rest of limb movement correct. And the shoulder is rather fun because it's not a joint, it's an actually an engineering mechanism, and it has these three bones, the humerus, your upper arm, your shoulder blade, and your collarbone, and those move in harmony according to various control systems which ensure that the, the whole system works perfectly. So there's the, the, the basic bits of the shoulder. And the other thing that's worth pointing out is that shoulders are not hips up at the top. They're really very, very different. Hips are well-constrained balls and sockets. It takes quite a lot to dislocate a hip, as anyone who's seen a hip replacement operation will be aware. Shoulders, on the other hand, are almost consist of a ball sliding on a flat plate. It's a slightly concave saucer, but in no way is it a constraining surface. And the consequence of that is that the shoulder has to be, that joint has to be controlled by muscles. So again, we get lots of interesting engineering control problems arising because we can't just rely on ligaments, which are bits of string essentially, and we can't rely on joint geometry to hold things together we rely upon muscular control. So, one of the things that engineers like to do at the start of understanding joints is to start thinking about predicting the forces that take place and therefore understanding a bit more of the control system. So, there are lots of information you need if you're going to build this computer model, just like we talked about the A380. This is actually a bit simpler, I'm glad to say, but there's quite a lot of information that we need. We have to know what shape the bones are. We've got to know how the muscles are organised 
how big they are, where they are how they are attached to the bones and so on. We have to know how heavy things are, their masses, because we're interested in dynamics, we're interested in motion and things being accelerated. We've got to know how the scapula and clavicle move in relation to the arm, because we've said that that's an engineering mechanism. And then we've got to know something about the arm movements which we need to control it, to, to perform a task. So what is the duty cycle of your arm? What do you do with it every day? Your leg you use for walking every day and maybe kicking a football. Your arm you use for a, lot, a wide variety of different things. And so we need to do some thinking about what tasks we might analyse. And then we also need to know what forces we need to perform these tasks. How heavy is this bottle? How difficult is it to lift a brick up to head height? And so on. We've got to have some feel for the external forces we can put onto the system. So first of all, the first thing that's remarkable about the shoulder functionally is that you can do that and you can get round and you can scratch your back and so on. The range of elevation <coughs> of your arm, it's, it's more than 150 degrees, 180 for a lot of people. The range of motion of the glenohumeral joint, that's this ball and plate that I was talking about, is about 120. And so it's this shortfall that's made up by the movement of the scapula on the chest wall. So it's an additional linkage in the system. And the control of this, as we shall see in a moment, is very repeatable and rather subtly organised. And I, I like to think of it as a neurological gearbox. But there's some kind of gearbox in there that relates the motions of these bones to each other, and it's not a mechanical linkage. So there we are, that's just to, to bring it home to you what's going on, so that this scapula can move in three dimensions actually, and slide around on the chest wall, and in some cases <coughs> come away from the chest wall. So we want to know how we can measure that motion, first of all, how is it controlled, and is it repeatable? There's a lot of there are a lot of publications which suggest all sorts of different things about how the scapula moves and in the past few of them have actually relied on engineering measurements and I think we have some contributions here. Okay, so that's, that's the motion. That's actually taken from some of our modelling data actually but that's the... I wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'm not going to run that again. Okay, sorry about that. It didn't do it when I practiced it earlier. So, why is it difficult to measure this scapular movement, to understand this mechanism? The movement's dynamic. As you move your arm around, then there's this internal tracking goes on. It occurs beneath the skin. What engineers like to do when they measure the movement of something is to stick something on it. So if you want to know how a, a leg moves, you stick some reflective markers on and measure the movement of those markers. But if you've got a bone that slides beneath the skin, then you can't do that. So what do you do? You, a few people, not very ethically, have stuck pins through the skin into the scapula, but it's not going to be a clinical technique. Um, and ethics committees take up enough of your time without having to um, look at things like that. You might think you could use x-rays, but in fact x-rays are not particularly reliable. There's some papers from the, the, our Dutch colleagues showing that it's actually quite an unreliable method for measurement. At the moment, the magnets of MRI machines are not big enough. We'd like to be able to track people's complete upper limb movements inside a, an MRI machine, but the magnets aren't yet big enough. 
And so the idea that we had now 20 odd years ago, I suppose, was a palpation mechanism in which you make a fixture which fits over bony landmarks through the, the skin bag on the outside. So there's, that's actually the first one we ever made, the locator, designed by a postgraduate student of mine, Nick Barnett. And that is adjustable and has prongs on it which fit quite neatly over the skin, <coughs> over the, those bony landmarks. So there it is in actual use. And to record the data from that, we have an electromagnetic sensor so we can actually get computer data from those movements. There are also movement sensors on the arm and a movement sensor on the chest so that we know how this mechanism is moving. We know where the chest is our fixed reference. We know how the scapula moves in relation to that and how the arm moves in relation. And we're then able to produce data like this. So this is just a simple graph showing how much your scapula rotates. This is the big rotation it makes sort of on the plane of your, the back of your chest there as you elevate your arm in, in that direction. So you'll see that's for an elevation there of 50 degrees, it's going up to about 15, 18 degrees, something like that. There are two interesting things about that graph. One is that the variability, and that's taken across a set of 11 normal subjects, the variability is really remarkably small. This is a repeatable kind of motion. And the second interesting thing is that if you lift someone's arm, in a, use a hoist of some kind to take the weight off, you get the same answers. So passive motion of the scapula is almost the same as active, which is something that is being questioned by a lot of people, but our data have consistently shown that to be the case. Okay, so that's a bit of understanding of the mechanism, this scapular humeral mechanism. Now what about the what do we do with our arms question? Well, this is actually quite a difficult one, and I don't think there'll ever be a definitive answer. To do this, we brought together a group of people, some people from the implant industry, a physiotherapist, an orthopaedic surgeon, two bioengineers, and went through various exercises of listing tasks and comparing our lists and prioritising them and so on, and came up with a, a set of ten common tasks which we used to look at, um, again, about a dozen subjects, normal subjects, to get a database of normal arm movements. And we then analysed those movements and computed the, the external loading associated with those. It was before the days, it's a long time ago, it's before we had a Vicon actually. This work was carried out by Ingram Murray, a postgraduate student at that time. And he compiled a complete database for us of the arm movements associated with this set of ten tasks, which in, included drinking, lifting weights to head height, moving your hand behind your back, and so on. And all of that has come together into a computer model of the, the shoulder in which we represent the... Remember I said to you what are the bones like? We represent the skeleton using published data from the US, um, some, a data set known as the visible human data. We represent muscles as, as though they were pieces of string which can change their length, which wrap around any bits of bone that happen to be in the way. We... There are actually 87 of those pieces of string, so the muscles are actually quite complex. Um, 31 muscle groups and then some ligaments as well for particular circumstances. And then we also incorporate those scapular and some clavicle movements that I've shown you previously. And so there we are. There is the, the complete model, and I'm hoping it will run without 
doing strange things on the screen afterwards. Okay, so that's the model being driven by some of the biomechanical data we collected. That's just a, ha a, a lifting a, the hand off a table task, but just showing that is, so that's real human movement data incorporated into a model representing the muscles, and those muscles, those pieces of string are wrapping around the bits of bone as you do that. And we can then do some engineering calculations to, to predict the forces in that uh, large number of muscles. And what that leads us to is to be able to predict the compressive forces in, in, this, in this case in the glenohumeral joint, this, the, the ball on plate bit of the joint. So those are forces in terms of body weight, and this is just lifting your arm without any additional weights at all. And so if you lift your arm up to about 90 degrees, then you will have a compressive force in that joint of about 80% of your body weight. So these are not trivial forces. They're not as big as hips and knees, but nevertheless they're not trivial. And because of the very subtle mechanics that I've alluded to, they're, they're forces that have to be handled quite carefully. Okay, rather than show you all sorts of examples of things you can do with this computer model, I thought I'd just talk to you about one thing which has become of interest to us over quite a few years, which is about what you might think of as upside-down shoulders. Normally, shoulder replacements are a bit like hip replacements, if you like. You, you imitate the normal anatomy. You have a ball and you have a, a very shallow dish, which one of which is plastic, the other which is metal, and you implant it in the normal kind of way. But then, Paul Gramont, a French orthopaedic surgeon from uh, Dijon, I think, um, back in the 1960s, 70s, suggested that for some patients it might be a good idea to reverse this design and put the ball where the socket used to be and the socket where the ball used to be. Why this came to him as an idea is not clear, um, but it is actually emerges as being a really interesting, clever idea. So, why might it be a good idea was the question we initially asked. Well, can we just do a little bit of anatomy? Essentially, your shoulder mechanism, in terms of muscles, consists of your deltoid, these big muscles, or if you're lucky they're big, around the outside of your arm, and then a set of muscles on your scapula. That shoulder blade that moves around is more than just a linkage, it actually holds big muscles on it. And those muscles have to act in connection with the deltoid muscle to maintain a stable movement of the joint. And those muscles on the scapula we refer to as the rotator cuff muscles. So normally the deltoid acts somewhere up in that direction and the rotator cuff muscles acts about down in that direction and that keeps the joint in its place as you elevate your arm. However, in quite a lot of older people, the rotator cuff becomes torn. In many cases, it just progressively wastes away, sometimes asymptomatically to start with. People don't even realise it's happening. There are progressive bits of failure or something, and it's not fully understood, um, and it progressively disappears, and function becomes greatly impaired. So, in terms of a mechanical model, let's just see what's going on. So that's our normal shoulder. There's a fairly shallow socket. There's the deltoid force I talked to you about. 
rotator cuff muscles pulling down, holding that thing together and acting downwards against the upward movement of the deltoid. But what then happens is if that rotator cuff disappears, you're left with the deltoid only, and there's then a big risk that that joint is going to ping out of place and shoot upwards underneath the top of your um, shoulder, the, the bone we call the acromion. Okay, so that implies that the contact forces between that ball and socket are going to move around on this shallow socket. So let's have a look at that in our model. First of all, that, is, that green line there is a trajectory of the contact force as you elevate your arm in a normal shoulder. What I'm then going to do is to simulate a rotator cuff tear. So there, some muscles have disappeared on the left-hand bit of the model there. And then that... Um, darker this line here there is the contact force shooting upwards to the top of the space there indicating that contact the joint is trying to dislocate it's, it's going to be moving upwards ok so that's what's predicted if you then look in the orthopaedic literature you'll find x-rays in papers that look like this in which on the left you see a reasonably not too bad shoulder, and then as you move progressively to the right, you see a humerus firmly embedded into underneath the acromion, where it has completely come up against the, the bone, bony arch at the top. So there's our model, and our basic understanding, our model and clinical evidence showing what happens. Okay, so what about this back-to-front joint we're talking about? Has that got a role to play for these patients? So we put this model, Andreas Contaxis, a colleague of mine, put this model, this type of implant into our model. And um, there you see it implanted there with the appropriate muscles can be removed and so on. So we can imitate, model completely, this different kind of joint in place. There's one other thing I've got to just explain to you while we're looking at all this, is what I mean by a moment arm of a muscle. And what I mean is that it's that distance in that blue line there, and that determines how much ability a muscle has to turn a joint, to rotate a joint. So the, the bigger that blue distance, the easier it is to your deltoid muscle to elevate your arm. You'll see why that's important. So if I now look, if I compare on your left there a, um, a normal anat anatomical joint, there's that radius R1, that's the moment arm of there, a deltoid wrapping around there. And if I then look at my reverse anatomy one, you can see quite clearly that that radius, that green line, is a lot longer. So one of the things this muscle, this implant has done for us is to increase the ability of deltoid to lift your arm. So that's a clever idea, that's a contribution because this is going to be a patient who's got muscular weakness and so on. So this is a, a contribution to um, solving their problems. <coughs> but there's a bit more to it than that. Because what actually happens is you effective what engineers would refer to you change the envelope of forces. The forces now from the, that socket are, can push down on the top of your humerus because of the, this new back-to-front arrangement. And what we find is, if we run that in our model, that there's the contact force down in here. So here's that green arrow, that's the contact force which is acting straight down in the middle of that ball and socket. So there it is again, and on that picture, there is that's in the cup, that's in the socket, which is now 
on the top of the humerus, remember, that has a nice fixed trajectory there. And similarly, it's got a, this length that just re reflects the movement of the joint. But there is no sign here of forces going outside the region, no sign of instability. So we've invented, by this reversing idea, a shoulder joint which doesn't need a rotator cuff, which remains stable. Now, of course, that sounds like magic, but all the engineers in the audience will know that magic never really comes. And whenever you think you've got a good idea to solve one problem, you're in, you have a risk of introducing some other problems. And the problem of this particular design is that the prosthesis, the, the metal part of the prosthesis, can actually collide with nearby bone in what we call impingement. And we have clinical evidence that this happens and it is, it is a well-reported clinical problem. Those are the places where it happens. It happens when your arm's down by your side and also when you lift your arm fairly high up. It depends upon a number of parameters. It depends upon some design things. The diameter of the sphere you use, the depth of the cup and the, the angle of the, the shaft. And as far as the surgeon's concerned, it depends upon its influence by where you put that sphere, or the dome as we call it, onto the scapula, and how you align the cup onto the humerus. So there are, there are these two sides to the, to the story. If you look at it as a, an engineering design problem, then what you can really see is that as you decrease the amount of constraint, moving along here, then we have a fairly unconstrained one <coughs> here, you've got a nice large range of motion, but here you've got lots of stability, so less stable, more stable, less motion, more motion, and that's the, the essential design conflict that you're dealing with. But there's where the impingement occurs, or one of the places. And on the other hand, there is where the dislocation can occur. So what we're trying to do, we want, we're performing an optimization. We want to find what is about the right kind of shapes here to get ourselves between those two conflicting objectives. And so we ran our model, a whole lot of different scenarios, and come up with a ranking of how different features of the prosthesis can influence that. And we find that, in fact, a large number of them, and these ones in the middle, some of these really big bars, so that the bigger the bar, the more influence it has. Um, surgical technique is really, really important. But having said that, it's up to the engineer designing the implant to allow the surgeon to place things appropriately. So the outcome of performing that optimization has actually been a new implant, and there are some 25 being implanted so far, which is a, a, a UK company, JRI Orthopaedics, and we did this work in collaboration with Professor Angus Wallace, who's Professor of Orthopaedics in Nottingham. And this is the, the new implant, which can be either a normal anatomical one, or else it can be a reverse anatomy one, where we have the ball up at the top here instead of the socket. <clears throat> and you'll notice that the stem, these parts, are identical so that the surgeon can decide, actually, at the time of operation, which way round he wants, what kind of joint he wants to, to use, depending upon the exact pathology that he finds when he's in there. So that is, I hope, an example of using computer approaches to designing new implants, which I hope, you know, we believe is a successful approach. Okay, so my second bit 
I want to talk about is a slightly different but related thing, which is to do with this control of the shoulder, which I think is of paramount importance and very interesting. So we know that all of our limb movements rely on an awful lot of neurological input. Our brains have to work very hard to produce, to achieve complex motion. And this is particularly important in the arm because we, we, like, we need precision control and we expect a very large range of motion. So I naturally got interested, as I've hinted already, in the control of scapular motion because that's a key part of that control problem. There are various things we know. We know that scapular rotation changes after injury. We know that patients, in particular, patients with a painful shoulder often avoid using their glenohumeral joint and they actually use their scapula as a substitute. What happens after a stroke and what might be the related mechanisms of scapular control? And this is some data which actually came to mean more to me after a second study, having allowing me to go back and look at some earlier work. So, with a clinical colleague, Chris Price, who's a, a stroke physician, we um, had a look at the shoulder motion of 46 patients after stroke. And we measured their scapular motion using the technique I've shown you, both on their good side and the bad side. So every stroke patient has one side where motion is more or less normal and then the affected side. And so we compared those. And we then were able to define three kinds of people, as you might expect, symmetrical ones in which the scapula moves the same on each side, some who had more motion on their affected side, some who had more motion on their unaffected side. And so there we are, there are those kinds of groups, there are the symmetrical ones. Here are what I call the laggards, where the affected side moves less than the normal side, and the leaders, where the affected side moves more. So we had those three kinds of people. And the clinician group also perform various other clinical tests that they do. And in particular, they look at the progress of recovery and they look at pain and the reaction to pain. And what they found was that the symmetrical people all had a good recovery and they didn't have any pain. The leaders, so those are the people with more scapular motion than normal, also had good recovery but they had lots of pain. And then the laggards, whose scapula didn't move very much, as much as normal, but they also had pain and they had poor recovery. So we had these clinically three different kinds of people who were biomechanically different. And at that stage, that was, those were just the recorded findings. And I don't think we really understood more about that until, let's say, more recently. And the understanding more recently bit comes from this work looking at reverse shoulders because we've had the opportunity to look at a lot of patients with these reverse shoulders and there are two designs in particular and these are an interesting group to look at because they've got a very easily defined mechanical situation they've only got one major muscle which is their deltoid muscle and they're normally pain free so we made a whole lot of measurements of scapular motion of those people so first of all, this is looking at the delta prosthesis, which is the commonest um, reverse anatomy shoulder prosthesis on the market. And if I just put some lines in here, there's, that's normal scapular motion. That's what a normal person sort of scapular motion achieves. This is just when elevating the arm. And then that red line is the best fit of how much scapular motion our patients with these reverse shoulders have. 
And at that point, I was of the view that putting reverse shoulders in people makes them have more scapular motion. That all seemed quite nice and simple. Until we then did a second study where we looked at another reverse shoulder design, designed by Ian Bailey and um, Peter Walker at Stanmore, in which the moment arm is very much smaller. And when we looked at those people, there was the normal motion, this is to a different scale, and there is the scapular motion of these people compared with normal. So these people had lower <laughs> scapular motion. And I didn't believe the data to start with, and the postgraduate concern, Milad and his JD, got, was quite upset with me. He thought that I wasn't believing his work, and I didn't. And then, <laughs> slowly, we, had, we looked more and more, and we ended up deciding, yes, these data were correct, that they it did all add up. And it was after doing that, so what, what, this, we're happening, what we're seeing here is that people with larger moment arms have more scapular motion. Those with a smaller moment arm, that distance I showed you, have less scapular motion. So let's think a little bit more about this moment arm story that I keep engineers are always on about these things. So here I've got a sort of pretend model of a joint and I've got one muscle wrapped around one cylinder here and another ma mapped around a, wrapped around another cylinder and so the moment arms of those two are the red and the blue arrow distances. Okay? Right, what happens when that joint moves? Well, when that joint moves, so there we are, we take it around through 45 degrees, the muscle unwraps and, of course, my red muscle shortens much more than my blue one. Because that's associated with this bigger moment arm, so it's unwrapping around a bigger cylinder. It's like in athletics when you're on the outside track. So there's something different about these replacements. The moment arm is affecting not only the ability of the muscle to lift, but it's also affecting the muscle length. And muscle length matters, because as you lift your arm... Normally, you would shorten that deltoid muscle. Okay, if I just move my arm, then that red arrow is going to shorten. And depending on the moment arm, as I've just shown you, the bigger the moment arm, the more it will shorten. But if I use the scapular motion, I can stop that shortening, or at least I can reduce it. And that's just a graph that shows you how much force you can get out of a muscle according to its length. So as you, as you shorten the muscle, it loses the ability to produce force. So it's ideally you want to keep it up here to use the muscle effectively. So scapular motion is going to help that and that is going to be related to moment arm. So there's then a hypothesis that says is scapular rotation regulated to optimise the length of this deltoid muscle? So we end up with a sort of truth table from all of these things we've been looking at and let's go through this carefully. First of all, we know that in normal subjects, they've got a normal joint and they have pain, that their scapular motion increases. We now know that our patients who have normal stroke patients who have normal recovery, they've got a normal moment arm, they've got a normal joint, they have pain and their scapular motion increases. The patients who re recover badly, the poor recoverers, they've still got a normal moment arm, Yes, they have pain. Their scapular lateral motion is reduced. Okay? So, and the, the people who are 
symmetrical, they've got a normal recovery and they just they don't have any pain, so everything remains normal. If I now look at my shoulder replacement patients, then I find that the, the delta, they're the people with the big moment arm here, they don't have any pain and their scapular motion increases and then this Bailey Walker prosthesis where they have a slightly smaller than normal moment arm, they don't have any pain and their scapular lateral <coughs> motion decreases. So I've then got a story which seems to fit together some of these things that the, the difference in the stroke patients is related to the ability to compensate for pain. The difference in the shoulder replacement <coughs> patients is related to the need to regulate the length of this deltoid muscle so you can get lots of lifting power to lift things. So this is, that's just a summary of things, normal pain response, abnormal pain response. Okay, so overall, we're suggesting that joint pain and the need to use deltoid muscle near to its optimum length are probably important factors in deciding how your scapula moves. And the response of patients after stroke suggests that normal response to pain is associated with good recovery, but there are likely to be lots of other factors in here that we do have some ideas about, but there's not time tonight to talk about. But I, I give this to you as an example, I think, of how good biomechanical measurement can start to shed new knowledge about mechanisms of control in this case or other biomechanical mechanisms. Okay, so just finally, then, some, I want to talk about this third thing, which comes straight out of what we've just been talking about, really, which is about how do we provide good rehabilitation of the arm of people after stroke. Two-thirds of people after stroke can walk, but only one-third can use their affected arm satisfactorily. We have an ageing population, and the incidence of stroke with age doubles for every decade above 50. So you only have to put some of those numbers together looking at thinking about the economic background that we're in to realise that there is a problem here. So there's the ageing bit. We know that some physiotherapy after stroke works. There, is, there are studies that suggest it does work. They're not controlled studies usually, but they do suggest it works. And that more means better. And it's the more means better bit which is what frightens um, health service providers. There's an international shortage of therapists and, of course, they're expensive to employ. And so a possible way out of the situation might be to use robotic therapy techniques to provide the therapy. We've been interested in various kinds of robots for some years as a sort of sideline in, in many ways about the main stuff I've talked about. But this was a, a wheelchair-mounted assistive robot we developed under a European grant back, I suppose, 10, 12 years ago now. Um, which is published but didn't sadly go into commercial production, although people still contact me about the designs, actually. But let's think in particular about robots <coughs> after stroke. There are quite a lot of people in this business. There is a belief that this is a, a good way forward. There is the, this is just a, a, a set of three, but there are lots more. Um, the Nerebot in Italy is a cable-driven system in which the patient, there is, there is a screen display here and the patient performs exercises to um, respond to challenges set on the screen. The MIT Manus, which is arguably the market leader, certainly in the US and probably in the world, is commercially available, um, does similar things. It's a, it's a planar mechanism 
in which force there's force feedback and there is again games provided here that are challenges and so on and then the quite an interesting one from California the mirror image motion enabler MIME in which the affected arm of the patient is connected to a robot and the normal arm to an actuator so that the patient is forced into producing mirror motion so as he moves his unaffected arm to the centre then the affected arm will, will follow it in, in mirror image. So those are just some of the devices that are around. I've been associated with one, our Newcastle group was associated in quite a big European consortium led by William Harwin, um, not too far away from here in Reading. And this was based on using a commercially available robot, the, the Haptic Master, in which the robot is attached to a patient with a three degree of freedom gimbal, that's a like a ball mechanism to enable um, to in interconnect the linkages. And then the weight of the arm is supported by some springs, which you can just see here on the picture, actually, um, to take the, the weight <coughs> of the arm at the same time. And so the system pr provides ranges of exercises and games, which, and the robot can be programmed so it will either assist you in performing a task, it will be fairly neutral or it can actually oppose you doing so as a, a quite much more forceful training aid in later stages of rehabilitation it can provide big challenges and then there's feedback and measures of progress provided so these are the, the different modes we have a patient guided, patient assisted this is a, a bead highway where you you remember, you'll all remember those <coughs> games where you have a curved bit of wire and you have a bead with a hole in and you have to thread it Round, and if you touch it, the bell rings. Well, this is a, a, a computer equivalent of doing that, and again, can be made more or less difficult according to how you set up the force feedback in the system. So those are the sorts of things you can do with that. So I've now got a bit of video, which is showing the, the um, gentle robot. And this is at an exhibition in the Netherlands a few years ago, being demonstrated by physiotherapist Susan Coot, who is from, was at that time in Dublin, because Dublin were part of the consortium. So here you see this sort of fairly awkward, actually, process of attaching the robot. You have to have a splint across the wrist here to maintain control of the wrist. And then there's this large bearing here, which is the gimbal I referred to. And these are the various games and displays that the, the patient can interact with. So it's a task of having to move balls around and so on into the space. So you can see the concentration going on trying to perform these different games. There is just a little bit of sound on the end of this video. <clears throat> Now I can really feel the muscles in my shoulder and it's generating a lot of heat just from that time. And I want one back. Can I have one from the kitchen? <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so that's just an example of, of a system very much under development. There's a long way to go yet on these things. And so really my final couple of slides is about these issues. <clears throat> Where are we on all of this? And um, Ian Swain is in the room, is leading a, a big NIHR, NIHR project about upper limb rehabilitation after stroke, which, in, which has really made some of us think a lot about the whole aspect of whether this is a technology that's going to come into clinical practice and what are the issues. So there is a certain amount of evidence already that these robots work. But it's, interestingly, first of all, it's nearly all been performed by the people who've invented the robots. There are almost no objective studies, which is slightly disturbing. We're now in an environment in healthcare where all healthcare providers, whether it be the NHS or private agencies, whoever it is funding, insist on an evidence base before they'll buy things. There are no completed randomised controlled trials of rehabilitation robots yet. Um, there is one going on relating to the MIT minus over in the USA, but that's the only one that's underway. There are no, no others. Yet at the same time, the pressure on therapy costs is rising really rapidly. But then there are other therapy technologies that are in competition. We shouldn't imagine that robots are necessarily the only way ahead on this business. And one quite interesting one, which is much, much simpler than a robot, what we call constraint-induced motion therapy, in which the patient is essentially forbidden to use the, um, the, the unaffected arm and forced to perform tasks with the affected arm. And maybe that's a more effective technology. We, we genuinely don't know yet. And this NIHR project I say that we're involved with is beginning to look, has reviewed a lot of literature and is be beginning to think about setting up studies to evaluate some of these things. So the future genuinely is uncertain. I don't think we know yet whether robots are going to get out there mainstream. Um, this study may open a way forward. It may be that robots will emerge from all of this as a great way forward, but we, we genuinely don't know. But meanwhile, the problem is still with us. So, that I leave you with, with those thoughts, really. There isn't, I'm not here to say robots are the answer to your problems, but there's lots of interesting work going on. There's, there's lots more we could all do, but we've, we need to think about how we just evaluate what we're doing. Okay, so some final conclusions about what we've been talking about. I hope that what I've demonstrated is that the combination of biomechanical models and good measurement are an essential part of the design of all rehabilitation technologies, whether it be joint replacements, robots, understanding stroke rehab, and so on. The approach for us has led to novel designs of joint replacement, a better understanding of the mechanics and neurological control of the shoulder mechanism, and a scientific basis for new robotic technologies for rehabilitation of the arm, with lots more work to go on. This is not the end of work at all. This is the beginning of a lot of things that have to take place. Okay, so as I finish, I must thank a lot of people who worked with me over 20 and more years, um, a lot of postgraduates, postdocs, and so on, and also, of course, the funding agencies who, who make these things possible to, to keep um, people fed and watered and to buy equipment and so on. So I, I thank all of those people and agencies very much. Okay, thank you very much.
Well, thank you, Garth, for a fascinating lecture. I mean, I have new respect for the shoulder. I mean, I made a note of it. 31 muscle groups and 87 force lines. So that's really pretty impressive, isn't it? It's uh, amazing. Now, I'm going to start off the questions. Um, I was very interested in, in the, the first bit of the work, talking about the importance of the scapula. Now, one of the things that, that, that worries me is I've seen therapists do some rehabilitation on, on stroke patients. And very often they'll actually feel the, the position of the shoulder and the scapula and, and, and encourage the, the, the patient to do the movement and just giving feedback all the time. Now, of course, some of these robotic systems obviously don't take any account at all of what the scapula is doing. You're just looking at the target on the screen. So do you think we're missing a trick here by, by not getting some information on what the scapula is doing back <coughs> to the patient? Well, I don't know. Um, the first comment is, I don't think any of us know where our scapulas are, ever. There is not... Feedback from a scapular position does not exist. And you discover this, sometimes you, perhaps you've got a thin shirt on, you're sitting on a, a hard, uncomfortable chair, and you move your arm, and all of a sudden you feel this bump on your back, because these things moved that you weren't aware it was there. So I don't think we know where the scapula is in normal practice. So. Is it then useful to tell people who have a pathology that theirs is in the wrong place? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, some more questions? Yes, John. Hi, um, thank you. The whole talk was really interesting, but I, and I, I think I'm going to ask a really boring question. But I, I'm, a, I'm a roboticist, and I'm very interested in the business case for the sorts of things you're talking about at the end. So just a very brutal question. How much does it cost to train a physical therapist, and then how much would the robot technology cost? I, I don't know the numbers. I mean, it, it's, a very, it's a very valid question. But it, my, one of my views about robots and the business case is to subvert the whole thing. Because so I have a suspicion that in many ways they are effective, even if they don't go through RCTs. And I would quite like to see them for sale in Tesco's. And as long as they're seen marked as being safe devices, no one can stop anybody from playing with them at home. And so the, I think if you can take that approach, the business case totally, totally changes. Because the, the business case that's normally presented is the NHS funding or the private healthcare funding one, which is a very, very different methodology. So, so you're trying to get a cheap consumer version I of the I think I mean, I'm not involved in doing it myself, but that's my view about how it ought to go. Um, Garth, you emphasise the difference between the hip joint and the shoulder joint at the beginning. But do you know anything about the shoulder joint of the quadruped in terms of mechanics? Yeah, is the same still, as ours, or is it? They're still pretty shallow. Right. Yeah. Um, if, if, and dinosaurs, if you go to the British Museum, not the, the Natural History Museum, and look at the dinosaur shoulder there, you think it's almost a flat plate. Well, they're quadrupeds, though, so that's some of them, I suppose. But I mean, yeah. yeah. And the rotator cuff is similar. But then dogs have clavicles and cats don't, right. but they still have shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's that way around. Is that how you know which one you're eating? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've not been to Korea, I don't know. <laughs> you haven't mentioned physiotherapy. Well, I did. I was very nice about physiotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> Physiotherapy works, but it's very, very expensive. That's the horrible truth. 
people are very expensive. No, I don't think. Oh no, no. I think we've, as engineers, we've failed if that's the case. <coughs> I mean, can you not envisage just some centre somewhere which is combined with where you go to the gym? That there's also some, there are also some robots there which stroke patients can go with. People who have had a stroke, they're not even patients. People who have had a stroke can go and play with those. And maybe there's a physiotherapist who has an overwatching brief, but it's not. I mean, one-on-one -on -one concentrated therapy is very, very expensive. Yeah. The thing that struck me as a non-medical engineer is the fact that you stated early on that you've done 11 samples, essentially, which bring out the human population is statistically insignificant. But there seems to be very bold statements you're making. And it, it, it didn't seem to be a particular surprise that the reversed um, joints replacement would work or not. Uh, which the panel led me on thinking, is anyone actually doing small off the wall research into totally different types of methods to resolve the problem? <coughs> what do you mean by totally different methods? Well, you, you, you said yourself, you expressed express surprise that the reverse mechanism worked. To me, that shouldn't have been a surprise at all. Um, but it does rather... Well, I'm allowed a little bit of, sort of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but, it, but it kind of leads me to think, you know, are there therefore other solutions which could be even more uh, practical in some circumstances? Or, or again, I'll be missing the bus here by not researching. You've got to have the minimum number of bits. So there are only going to be two pieces for a joint replacement, if possible, for all the usual engineering and surgical reasons. And you can't do a lot more than either have a, a board and socket one way, a board and socket the other way, or a hinge. Yeah, if you're mimicking biology, I suppose. I mean, well, there no, are other no, engineering no. solutions in things like vehicles or you know, mechanical equipments that yeah. must kind of allow the same mechanism or the same output. But what are these things? These have got to go inside people. Yeah, this is what I'm kind of asking. I mean, the thing that kind of sprang to mind, uh, um, again, as a non-medical guy, I don't know, it's kind of like a universal joint within some sort of sheath. Yeah. Too complicated. Keep it simple. That's what I'm asking. Is anyone looking for other than the... Yeah, people. There, are, there have been all sorts of... Um, fancy shoulder joints have been some with a what referred to as bipolar where you have a, a ball and a socket and a socket and things like that which have caused no end of problems because um, one bit of it seizes up and so on. So keep it simple, it really is the first thing the surgeon will say to you. And after all as engineering designers that should be our rule as well. Just a couple more questions. Uh, well, I, we have one already. <laughs> <laughs> In, in a similar vein to that question, um, when you talked about the constraints of having a, a, a cup and ball, uh, the size of the cup versus the range of movement, could you have a cup within a cup so that uh, there was a telescopic? That's what I was saying, that that's the sort of thing people have tried. And unfortunately, what seems to happen is that one of the articulations seizes up. Because what soft tissue, what tissue loves to do is to grow into spaces. As soon as it sees any space, there's a cat in hell's chance, it'll be there. And it seems to find that space when you have these more complex designs. Um, I'm wondering about the, uh, the upside down um, shoulder joint. Is the period of rehabilitation afterwards any different, any longer or shorter than the, the normal? 
I, I honestly can't answer. You'd have to ask one of the shelter clerics. I honestly can't answer the question. Sorry. Okay, maybe okay, two more questions. So Tim here and then I'll back. So Tim first. Um, looking at your volunteer who is using a robot in Holland, um, she seemed to be, some of the movements she was using to achieve the um, goals that the game was setting her were in fact whole trunk movements and not, and not shoulder movements. And I was wondering, um, which is extremely obvious, you mean you'd have seen it yourself, but I was wondering what strategies you might be thinking of employing of, of, in, of making sure people are actually doing the therapy you want them to do, rather than just winning the game and maybe bypassing the therapy you're trying to achieve. The whole issue is about how you constrain <coughs> patients in these things is is quite a major problem actually. And you have you do make some fairly pragmatic decisions. But for instance, so one of the robots I could have shown you, which is the IFAM system developed in Leeds, they actually take the view that you should control both segments of the arm completely and therefore you can determine where centres of rotation are and therefore influence or prevent or minimise anyway trunk movements and so on. So there are various other approaches we don't know. Physiotherapy achieves, you know, how it, what, what the procedures are, and how it achieves it. Before I would sort of think about answering the question. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm afraid dinner awaits some of us. So I'd just like to say, well, thank you very much again for coming to, to give a really fascinating lecture. Um, I think the the range of questions we've had shows the the interest of the audience. So you've captivated us. So it's a, a very memorable one. Thank you very much indeed for coming down from the Thank you all very much for coming. I'm Nigel Harris, I'm director of Biome. So um, I apologise if I've not come around to see you during the, the exhibition. We look forward to welcoming you again next year. And um, lots of fascinating things are happening at Biome. So do keep an eye on the Biome website. Have a look now and again, and you'll be able to see what's happening. Just one or two thanks uh, to Gail and Paula and the University of Bath Hospitality team for uh, hosts and for the Biome team for setting up the exhibition. And thanks again for coming. Thank you.